Hello, family. My name is Mickey, and I'm definitely an alcoholic. And I drink this group for the great hospitality, great hospitality they've shown me and my friends tonight, uh, and also for allowing me to come here to be of service. <coughs> my primary purpose tonight is to make this program as attractive to the newcomers and new people as the old-timers made it to me when I got here. The old-timer is the most important person in this room. Because without them, AA could not go on, and AA would not be available for future generations of alcoholics. Uh, there's going to be a tradition that I've been doing for a while. Is, are, is, there any new, is there a newcomer in the room that would like to have a big book? Is there someone that's not a newcomer that would like to have a big book that has some time? Okay, by any chance, if there is someone here that, that did not care to speak up, the book will be up here waiting for you at the end of the meeting. Let's start out by thanking Debbie for being our warm-up speaker. And I'd like to take this opportunity to express my deepest gratitude for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Without which, I'll probably in a hospital, a jail, an institution, or possibly even dead, in my own hand due to untreated alcoholism. The old times were very generous to me, and that's what I intend to, to give away tonight. Um, so if you're, if you're new or fairly new, I'd like to welcome you. And if you're here and you're struggling and you're thinking that life's not fair, keep coming back. It gets worse. <laughs> When it gets worse, that's what you're supposed to call it. Talk to your sponsor, talk to your AA friends, and reach out to a congregate in yourself. I'm real excited to be here, to Larry, uh, mainly because I didn't create a lot of refuge here. So I can look, so I can look you in the eye and faith and, and not worry about having to make amends to you. Uh, and I never know what I'm going to talk about. I just say, you know, God... Uh, let me say what, need, what I need to say, and hopefully that someone will, will hear what they need to hear. Keep, keep coming back one, one more day. Um, I'm uh, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, good standing, since March 25th, 1982. Are there any other alcoholics in the room? All right. That's good. I just want to make sure I wasn't one of the black belt Alamon meetings. <laughs> you guys know why Alamons close their eyes when they make love to an alcoholic? They, they, they hate seeing an alcoholic having a good time. <laughs> and, 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 and if you're not, and if I'm not quite what you expected, all I got to do is remind you that you get what you pay for. <laughs> now, this is an awesome program. I've uh, enjoyed over the years everything that's come with it, the people that have been there for me, and uh, the people that went out of their way to carry the message to me. Uh, I'm supposed to talk about what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. And I don't know why any of you are here. It's none of my business. I only know why I'm here. I'm an alcoholic and an addict, through and through. 
I go, you know, make, I make promises to my, with the very sincerity of my, to my family, to my friends, I can never keep my promises, you know. So I'm extremely grateful that, you know, people were here for me. And I was one of those that was unlovable. But now, you know, I feel like, you know, because of the working the steps, working with a sponsor, working the steps in a higher power is the reason that my life changed. Uh, <clears throat> what it used to be like, I'm the guy your parents warned you about. Said <laughs> he's no good. He's rotten. Don't hang out with him. You know, get away. But you never listened to your parents. <laughs> so you came out and party with me anyway. And I got a vida. We were born to be wild, and we were bad to the bone. <laughs> and in time, I became a low-bottom alcoholic who fought the law and the law won. I started drinking when I was 10 years old. I had my first beer, and I didn't even like the taste of it. But in the true progression of this disease, about a year later, I was uh, drinking hard stuff and smoking those crooked cigarettes and sleeping with a 38 five-shot revolver under my pillow. Now, that should give you some kind of hint that uh, Growing up, I was not a normal kind of person. There were times that I uh, got productive, you know, and, and got sober, you know, for a little while, but I could never stay sober. And I continued drinking and drugging. Uh, at 13 years old, I had already gotten in trouble with the law. I could have used this program way back when I was 13 years old. And uh, you're never too old to be an alcoholic, too young to be an alcoholic, you know. It's just it's not how much we drank is what it, what it did to us and, and what, how it affected ourselves and our families and how I became a tornado in their lives. And uh, AA was the, the turning point for me. And what happened is, uh, you, you guys ever seen that movie, When a Man Loves a Woman? <clears throat> There's a scene in there where the actor, Andy Garcia, is trying to pick up on the actress, uh, Meg Ryan, in the bar. And it turns out they're really married, so they're just playing, you know, games with people in the bar. Well, that's the last bar that I ever drank in. That's why I had my last drink was in that bar. And what you see in, in that scene is, is the bar, uh, the scene of the bar. But, it, uh, but if you go down to the end and towards back where the restrooms are, there's a hallway. And at least the, the back part of the bar where there's some, some booths. And there's no windows back there, and it's, it's not it's, it's, it's not not lit very well. It's back in the corner in the dark, and that's where I used to drink. Well, when I came home to San Francisco to Fresno, again another blackout. I didn't even remember how I'd gotten home. Uh, but that morning, upon awakening, something changed, and I can't tell you if it was a voice, uh, a feeling, a thought. I don't know exactly what it was. I just, I just got it that it was over. And I didn't know what that meant or what I was going to do about it. But one thing led to another, and I wound up the ARC, you know, uh, rehab center in Fresno. And the ARC, I didn't know what I was expecting, what I was supposed to do. And that was the first time I, I was introduced to the 12 steps and 12 traditions. And... Uh, I knew that I was an alcoholic. Step one, I always knew that I was an alcoholic. 
I knew that in my mind, you know, and I, and I, and I intelligent, and I, I knew that I was an alcoholic. I'd known that for, for years. The last time I uh, had gotten arrested, I went to jail. When they, you know, when they give you that, that phone call, I, I didn't even take my phone call, so I knew it was just a matter of time before I was going to come back. So that, that become pretty much my pattern. I used to tell the guys, I, I, when I was, the last of my drinking, I was, I was a biker, long hair and motorcycle, black t-shirts and all that. And so I used to tell the guys, if we're going to go out tonight, give me a call by 10 o'clock, because after that I'm going to lock myself down and I'm going to drink to oblivion. So this last time I went to jail, um, I, I had no place to go anymore. I was like a, you know, like a squirrel in that, you know, surf cage thing. Um, and so I just, you know, just, just had been uh, resolved to the fact that any time I drank, I was going to jail, and that's the way it was always going to be. So about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, they called my name on the intercom and said, uh, you're kicking out, you know, pack them up, you're kicking out, and I was pissed off. Right? There's no place to go. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm like, I just want to come back. It might, it might be a, a week later or a month later or whatever, but I knew I was coming back. So I was pissed off and finally, you know, I, I just took turn out the back door. And, the, and this is how God has always been working in my life when I didn't even know it. I had met some people I parted with, you know, like a few days before. And they called my house and there was no answer. <clears throat> And so they started calling the hospital and the jails and they found me, and they're the ones that came and got me, you know. But that's the way that my higher power has worked many times. I, I've come across people that I only saw for maybe one time or two times when I, get, uh, when I was in trouble, and they came. It's the old thing about the kindness of strangers, you know. I survived on the kindness of strangers, even as, as uh, belligerent and, and, and the person, the angry, violent person I was when when I was out there. <clears throat> so like I say, uh, step one uh, was never a problem per se, but I, I had always uh, known it intellectually. And it wasn't until it went from, from my head to my heart that it actually really uh, was heartfelt. And I believe in chapter five, which was read here tonight, I think that's what, what, what that means, is that we admit it to our innermost self. Innermost self, I believe, is right here. And until that happened, I, I could not really accept the full uh, measure of the alcoholism and my part of what I, what I was doing, so I was always blaming someone. And so step two, what I've been told and uh, what I've read is that step two, what, what Bill W. is supposed to have uh, thought or, or his uh, reason for step two was that once a person is, is uh, sober for a while, and to pick up that first drink, that's the insanity. And so I, I believe that, and I believe that's true. But we can also be, I can also be insane sober. You know, that what some of the old timers used to call this thinking, thinking will lead me to drinking. That kind of thing. So I, I, I do understand that because I used to go to my sponsor. By the way, my, my original sponsor was a man named Father Bernie. <clears throat> and I needed Father Bernie. And he was on my list. I had five, a list of five people I wanted to ask to be my sponsor. And I wanted to ask him, but I knew he was going to turn me down. So I went down the list of the other people, and they actually did turn me down, and Father Bernie did take me on. And what I like about Father Bernie is that he's a, he was at that time, he still is, but he's retired now, a recovering alcoholic. 
and he, he knew something about this God thing. And I had flunked God, so I could not afford to flunk God anymore, so I really knew him. <laughs> and then also, uh, Father Bernie was, uh, was human, and he would share some of his human traits with me. You see, growing up, I always thought people of the cloth, you know, priests and, and nuns and people like that, I thought they had some immunity that said something special or different or above more morals like, <clears throat> like ourselves. But he shared he showed me that he was uh, uh, human, and, and so he shared his character defects and what, what he thought of from time to time. And then um, when I got to the, oh, the other thing, uh, I used, to, I used to, you know, talk to him and I, and I was telling him about what was going on and what I was thinking in my head and all that. And he told me, I want you to go to a meeting and share about that at the meeting. And I said, no, you think I'm crazy. And he said, you are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'd go to the meetings, uh, the, like the new meetings, and share in a real, real general way. And I wasted early night meetings, anywhere from 7 to 8.30 meetings. And I share a little bit more about it. And if I couldn't get it out of my system, I'd have to wait till the midnight meetings. We used to have midnight meetings back in the 80s. Uh, and a lot of them were candlelights. So they were in the dark and might be a little candle burning somewhere. And so it was in the dark, so I was like, I could really, I could tell you what I was really thinking. And so that helped me get it out. Okay. So then I, I got to the, finally got to the third step. And that's the one I bought at. Even when I, when I saw that uh, at the treatment uh, center, uh, because I've been running away from God. I, I, I grew up, you know, in, in, as a kid in a Catholic church and stuff, and, and my relatives were very, very religious. Uh, and they, uh, at times, they wanted to deliver the message of a spiritual type of life, and I was never home. So I, I've been running away from God all my life. And, and that's not uncommon, because even Bill W., when Eddie came to talk to him, or just to see him, and they were all drink, old drinking buddies, uh, Bill really expected for him to be drinking. And then we found out that Eddie wasn't drinking anymore, and that God had something to do with him not drinking, uh, Bill balked at that. And so that's where... Uh, <clears throat> The first step came in, uh, eventually came in to, to say, because what Eddie told Bill, he said, well, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy, basically what he said is, find a God of your own understanding, something like that. And I really think that's, that's one, been one of the greatest things that, that has happened uh, to us in this program and in the step three, because I think if, if I had come in here and, and had, had, had to embrace God 100%, I probably would not have made it. You know? um, so step three, I bought, and I didn't want to, I, I would rather take an ass whooping than to meet God on God's terms. So when, when I finally got there and I talked to a uh, third step, I talked to a lot of old timers. They basically told me the same thing. So there's no way you're, you're going to get sober if you try to go around this, around this step. You know, you've got to go right through it, and you've got to surrender, and you've got to find your understanding of God, one that you can live on, one that you can uh, trust, and one you can depend on. So with that, uh, I started really thinking, well, why, why don't I want this God? And fear, fear crept in. And so I started thinking this crazy thing, well, 
God's been waiting for me all my life. He's just been waiting to catch me in a weak moment. And so once I surrender, I know what he's going to do. He's going to have me on the 10th seat, wearing a blue suit and selling Bibles for the rest of my life. <laughs> and so that was my fear. Somehow, you saw, I talked about insanity. That was, you know, my fear. So, but what I got from those old timers is they, they told me, when they did, basically all of them said the same thing, different walks of life, you know, male, female, across the board. They all basically said the same thing to me. And that was that when they had done a complete and thorough third step, they got the freedom, but not only did they get the freedom, they, somewhere down the road they got to do exactly what they had always wanted to do. But might not have felt they had the experience, the training, the knowledge, education to do it. And so that's what I held on to, what the old timers told me. And I got in there and, and I did that step. And so along the road from that, I started running into people, again, the old timers. And there was this lady named Grace Elizabeth. I can never tell my story without talking about this, because this was a big turning point in my life. You've all heard about unconditional love. Well, I got to experience it through this woman. I was going to this group early in my sobriety that I intended to make my home group. And I've been going there for five, six months. And one night, it was, it was a candlelight meeting on a Friday night. And this particular night, I got to hear what I've been saying for those six months. The vulgarity that had been coming out of my mouth. I spoke in nothing but four letter words. I'm not talking hope. I'm not talking love. And so I, I heard myself. I heard what I was really had been saying. The filthy, vulgar things that had been coming, the words had been coming out of my mouth. And I, like, my, my spirit was convicted. And I couldn't stand myself. I couldn't wait till the meeting was over. So I swore I would never come back to that meeting. So here, years, uh, months later, uh, this lady was working downtown at the uh, Hilton, Hilton down in Fresno. And I walked in with the, I was going to meet a friend there, uh, in the coffee shop. And I walked in, and she was coming out of her office, and she saw me, and I didn't even notice her. But when she saw me, she was almost like yelled out my name. And there was people there, and I wanted to run, rush out and run out, but by then, people were all looking around and, and they got kicked out of their attention. So I just kind of stood there. And it kind of reminds, what happened next kind of reminds you of like one of those uh, slow motion movies. And so you cut to her and she'd be you know, coming like this. And you cut to me. And every time it go back and forth, like she get bigger and I get smaller. <laughs> and by, when she got just in front of me, I, I, I was able to a spot 10 step inventory. And I said, whatever she tells you, you've got coming. So just stand here and take it. So, so she gets up, you know, close to me, and I'm thinking she's going to be in my face, she's going to tell me all those bad things, and I just got sick of it. So I'm bracing myself, and inside I'm bracing myself. And she walks up to me, and she puts her arms around me, and says, how have you been? We've missed you. 
And with that, it took all the last of my fight out of me. That was unconditional love. And when I got here, a product of health, uh, a product of hospitals, jails, and institutions, and false pride, and ego, and all the things, I could not have admitted to you that that's what I've been looking for all my life. I had this chip on my shoulder because my dad left when I was a year old, and I was out to beat everybody up. When I, anytime that I hurt, I would have to hurt you. But I had to make you feel like I was feeling. It was always terrible. And so, once that happened, there was a change, some kind of psychic change occurred in me. And I waited until Friday night, so I couldn't wait till Friday night to get back to that same group. I went there and made my amends, and I got in line for some more of those hugs. I was unlovable, and growing up, I know people tried to love me, but I wouldn't let them. You know, I wouldn't let, I wouldn't let anybody get close. I had scars from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, and I got um, burns and scars and bullet holes and everything. You couldn't make me cry when I was out there. But that pain, that emotional pain of what I put people through, when I really got in touch with the fourth step, the, the last column, the fourth column, my part of that, I felt all the guilt and remorse of what I, I myself had done. And with that, I couldn't wait to get that out. So I went to the same sponsor, and I shared things and secrets that I thought I would never share with anyone. It was that poison that had been building up in me. And there's drugs and alcohol and other quick fixes to cover up. And so at that point, I knew that this program was working for me. I knew that God had intervened and entered inside me to let me see these things that were necessary for me to admit to get that freedom. And that reminded me, when I was going there, it reminded me of, of four things that, that had already happened before. <clears throat> when I was in, the, in treatment, there was a lady that had been sober 15 years. And she shared with us that she had relapsed. And that was our first introduction to sobriety. And we could not understand it. If you, in fact, we had what was called a tax therapy. <laughs> you, could, you could put somebody in front of you and, you know, just, you know, third degree them. And that's what a few of us did in group with the under supervision of a therapist. And we were like, one guy was really irate. And he says, if your life was so good, how come you drank again? And he could not let go of that. Okay. Later, uh, I, I sobered up on the buddy plan. There was a couple other guys in, in, in treatment that had got there before I did. And so we, they were trying to tell me what, what treatment was about and, you know, help me out to that. And so they got out uh, before I did. And they both relapsed. Then I, uh, I had a, a roommate, oh, I'm sorry, I, I lived in a men's recovery house for six months, and I, could, I got to see guys go back to their homes, their wives, and their jobs, only to relapse, some of them only, for some, only to see some of them relapse and come back. And then when I uh, got out myself, <clears throat> I prayed to have a sober roommate, because I really couldn't afford 
uh, to, to relapse. So his roommate uh, was like so into service. And uh, the things that on the outside that I wanted, uh, he reflected. So after we'd been roommates for close to a year, he relapsed. And all those things, what those things did for me is they taught me that if I wanted this program, I was going to really have to work at it. And that's, that's what, I, what I did. <clears throat> so I, I got into, uh, further into the steps, and now I'm in like at six and seven. And the book reminds me that the chief activator of my character defects is self-centered fear. The fear of losing something I already possess or not getting something that I demand. That's what the book says, that I, I demand stuff. Okay. And I, I can also be irritable and discontent. And that's not what, the way I was early in sobriety. One day, I pulled one of these old-timers out after meeting all the disciples. I said, Hey, Tomas, <laughs> I said, uh, since I stopped drinking, I'm no longer going to jail. <laughs> and since I'm doing a good job at work, my boss gave me a raise. When I get home, even my kids are glad to see me. And they hug me. And the dog wags his tail when he brings me my newspaper. <laughs> and my wife... My wife is so happy. We're having wild, passionate marathon sex. Yeah. And all that's good, Tomas. But when do the miracles get here? <laughs> a lot of old timers that uh, had unique stories and have unique stories. And those are the things that uh, help me laugh at myself and laugh with me, you know. And I know that underneath the laughter, there's a lot of pain. It's covering up a lot of pain. I share that from, from my perspective and the perspective of some of the guys that I've sponsored over the years and some of the people that have shared what, what's going on, what's, what's been going on. And because, you know, we, we hear that alcohol is but a symptom. Sometimes we need to go deeper and further and find out what, where that came from. So then I got the, uh, the list, you know, and my sponsor, I don't think my sponsor asked me, he says, um, you know, we made this list, and he says, are you willing? And so when I made the list, I said, yeah, I don't know how I'm, I'm going to make these amends, but I am willing. And so some of the, some of the things on my amends list was uh, uh, the IRS. I had, I, I had owed the IRS uh, thousands of dollars because I, I've had a lot of, I've had a, several uh, occupations careers and and one of them I was uh, an operating engineer and I worked on the if you ever heard of the uh, Helms project I was on that for five years <clears throat> underground power plant and uh, I went expense on taxes because some, somebody said that we didn't have to pay taxes no <laughs> and, and, and so I, I it sounded good for me so I, I didn't pay any taxes but uh, but when I got sober, you know, the IRS had a different idea about that. And so in early sobriety, I was willing to pay that, but I was not making that kind of money anymore. In fact, when I lived in that men's recovery house, I had to take a, 
uh, a job in a car wash. <laughs> and hear that, hear that, that song, more working at the car wash. <laughs> so that was me. <laughs> and uh, so that, that you know, at, at, at one time I would make, like back in the uh, uh, late uh, 70s, I would make like $30,000 a year and take off the rest of the year. And then my uh, company and, and my union and they would, would put some money aside and then, I mean, I, I, I lived good, let me put it that way. So once I got sober, I, I didn't want to get, go back into that right away because I, 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 told my, I told myself, why don't we take a year out of your life and try to get this thing called sobriety? And so I was committed to staying close to uh, the program uh, and, and the means and stuff. And so with that, uh, I, I decided that I, I needed to stay with, with AA, so I wasn't making that money. So I didn't have the money to make those amends, but I was willing. And so I moved around quite a bit in early sobriety. And it seems like I was just like, literally like one step ahead of the IRS. <laughs> because at that time, uh, they, they wouldn't deliver, they wouldn't forward your mail. You know, if, if you weren't there and you had moved, they had to kind of track you down. And so this went on and on, and, and, and I just never got, got the bill. Until I went back to work in, in my profession, and I landed a fantastic job up in the Bay Area, and I was making fantastic money. And so, one day my boss called me aside and says, oh, I want to show you this. And of course, I already knew about it, so it wasn't any surprise to me. But he almost like wanted permission and asked me if it was okay if I did, if I did this. Uh, and I told him, yeah, you know, I owe this money. So they, they uh, put a lien attached to my check, whatever it was. And so they took about a quarter of my, by my pay until I got, that bill was paid off and, and I could afford it. And I could afford it. So what my sponsor told me, uh, uh, he, you know, it, it came true. He said, you don't have to know how to do it, how to make this amends. You have to be willing. And so I was. And that's what happened. And the other thing about that job is I interviewed for that job and they liked me, you know, and I had not been liked like that ever, you know, in the jobs I'd had before to the point where they actually asked me when I wanted to start. I could have started the very next day. That's all I need a week. <laughs> and that's one of the things that, that has happened to me in this program. You know, the, the old timers you call said, you have a chance at life. Take it. Make something with it. And so I did. I risked, I had risked a lot of different things, uh, uh, occupations and doing so I've had like five different occupations. Like, it's like average about every seven years uh, I change, I change careers. And I enjoyed that, and I got good in my career, and I enjoyed it. And then I left. You know, most of most of the careers I left, I left on a high note, and went on to pursue the next one. So I, as a result of that, I got, I got to do a lot of great things in my life. And some of the things that I got sharing about the, the old time said they they got to do. Well, I got to live my dreams, and I got awards and diplomas and this and that from all the the footwork. And that's all I'm responsible for, is doing the footwork. And God has, has blessed me. And I, I'm, not, I'm not here to talk about material stuff or, 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 or you know, wealth and things. I'm talking about where, where self-esteem comes from. 
It comes from me doing something, sometimes by myself, without, without uh, involving anyone else, or would not make anyone else do anything for me. The things that the energy that I put out on my own sober. When I was drinking, I just always said, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. The only thing I did is got drunk and went to jail. So sober, I really, you know, did something with it. I did something with it because the old timers, you know, I talked about, I thought a lot about the old timers, and I quote a lot of the old timers, and most of those people aren't even around today. And I do that because I was three years clean and sober before I ever thanked my sponsor. And all these people that went out of their way, the Ron Kings, the Grace Elizabeth, you know, Father Bernie's, and, and all the people that I've met that have contributed something uh, to my sobriety, all those people I took for granted. And today I try not to do that. So then I, I got, let's say, the, the, the step, the ninth step. <clears throat> I had uh, seven family members die before I ever got sober. And every time somebody died, I'd go take care of the arrangements, then I'd go get, I'd go get plastered. So once I got sober, uh, they were on my immense list, especially my mother. Uh, my mother, as you know, most mothers, you know, they, they love you and they, 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 they don't want to see you, they don't raise, they don't raise people like me to be the person that I should ask to be. And, uh, she died of, of another disease, cancer. And I got to see that woman uh, deteriorate before my eyes to the point where she couldn't even you know, do anything for herself. And the last um, months, last couple months, uh, the only way she was staying alive, this would be before hospice and all those things we have today, this is 1976. And so, with all that going on, morphine was basically one thing was keeping her you know, out of pain and, and uh, alive. But she would read her good book, uh, and she'd fall asleep with it on her lap. And so when this was going on, my wife quit her job to take care of my mother. We bought a hospital bed in, I have two children, uh, and so we put them in one bedroom and we gave my mom their, their room. And one thing that I used to do in the morning, and see how God works in my life again, uh, doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. When my wife uh, quit her job, which I totally supported and, and was glad you know, that she was willing to do that, uh, my boss, like almost overnight, needed me to work more hours. And I'd have to work overtime. So that money that we weren't getting from her, we were getting through this other way. And so I would go in there, sometimes I have to get up like 4 o'clock in the morning. So I'd go make sure, when I got up in the morning, I'd go in there and check on her, make sure I could, you know, feel her breath and that she was alive. I didn't want my children, you know, to see her, you know, as she had gone in the night. So she was my example after I'd been sober and looking around for signs about how God had been working in my life. And she, she became a big one. Because even with all of the pain she was in, she didn't have anything bad to say about anyone. You know, she was just, just loving. And she had told us that she had actually, well, the, well, she had, she did, it was documented in the hospital. She, she died and came back. And she told us, she showed us that she would never, ever fear dying again. Because she had gone to, she had seen what it was like and so she didn't fear. So when she 
when she went, uh, it was a blessing for her, but it, it was very painful. And like I said, this is 1976, and that's really when, when my drinking started. I mean, no, I'm sorry. Now, not when it started, but when it really got worse. And like I said, my dad had left, and so it was just my mom and I. That's the only person that I really uh, connected with uh, in my life. So when she died, I was really devastated, <clears throat> and I drank and drugged behind all that. And under the influence of drugs and alcohol, I almost killed a uh, deputy sheriff. I was uh, under psychiatrist care, so I was just going crazy, and I didn't know what was going on, and they were giving me all these pills, and I was putting alcohol on top of it. So when, when I uh, uh, was under that, that's when I almost killed that police officer. I had no guilt or remorse whatsoever. The state assigned something like five psychiatrists trying to figure out why I would do anything like that. But I'm here to tell you that uh, that's normal behavior for me. Under the influence of drugs and alcohol, I just don't give a damn. And that's not the person that's standing up here tonight. And the, the people that can best appreciate what you have done for me is my own family. I've got uh, my, my children uh, and my grandkids. In fact, my granddaughter uh, will be buying for Miss California in June or July in Fresno. Because my, I really believe because my wife uh, is a normie. I believe that if this is hereditary, that my children and my grandchildren got that gene. Because they have never shown any signs of disease and at their age, I was already, you know, already, already full-blown. So that's nothing I'm very grateful for, that my children and my grandchildren uh, have never uh, fell, in, fell into that uh, merciless obsession that some of us have had. And the best news about my granddaughter uh, going to, uh, to that pageant is that I will be sober and I will not be the tornado in her life. And I did so much of that when I was drinking, called scenes and did all this stuff, stuff so she can enjoy her life and her day without worrying where I'm going to show up and destruct everything. So the nine step <clears throat> Uh, with my uh, other family members, I, I went to the grave site, and that's where I made my amends. Years later, I uh, again got doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Through a friend of a friend, we wound up going sober. My now I'm sober, and I, and I go through uh, a, on, a, on a journey from Indian reservations across the United States. But before I share that, I, I've got to back up and talk about Ron T. Monty had had polio, he's a sober member, and uh, he was in a lot of, he had some disfigurement, and I think he was one of the most spiritual people you'd ever meet. So we'd go after a meeting, you know, we'd go over to Cedar Lane's owner, Fresno, and we'd talk. And then one day he, he told me, he says, I want you to tell me all the things you want to, you want to, you want to tell your father who left you. So I, I want you to dump all that stuff on me. And I, he says, I want you to treat me like I was your, 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 your father and say all, all the wrong things you wanted to say that you never said. So he became like my surrogate father. 
and we talked and talked and you know, got, eventually got, got past that. So by the time that I got to see my actual father, I didn't want anything from him. Ronte helped me to love my father. So when I did see him, all I wanted to do was uh, set things straight so whenever either one of us died, that we wouldn't have that over us. And I got to do that. And, uh, and that, making contact with my dad and him accepting me and loving me and he had told his wife about me and I had an open door. I still have an open door. And so that really helped me to have a better idea of my identity because I had an identity crisis you know, going up all my life. And so there again, by doing these steps one day at a time, I've been healed of a lot of those things that tip on my shoulder and the things that alcohol was just a symptom about. Now there's a, seems to be like three philosophies in AA these days. It's old school, new school, and no school. <laughs> old school is when you're really committed to your sobriety. And AA is a way of life. That's old school. New school is when people do the bare minimum to stay sober. And for them, AA is more like a hobby. And no school is when people hope something will rub off without any effort on their part. And those are the ones that say that AA doesn't work. Well, I'm old school. And I make sure the guys I sponsor have a relapse prevention plan. Because it was said here tonight. Remember, we deal with alcohol. Cunning, baffling, powerful. And very patient. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. And you find him now. Not six months from now. Not years from now. I mean right now. Because we are not cured of alcoholism. All we have is a daily reprieve contingent on our spiritual condition. And in order for me to have a spiritual condition, I need to work on having a spiritual foundation. Once I have a spiritual foundation, I can expect to have a spiritual awakening. And I must continue working on a personal relationship with a power greater than myself. Because it's not about getting sober. It's about staying sober. There may come a time when I will not have mental defense against that first strength. It will have to come from a power of myself. Newcomers, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, <clears throat> and the result was Abraham. <laughs> 
until we let go absolutely. <clears throat> Relapse is not part of the program. It's part of the disease, but it's not part of the program. Now, why would I say such a stupid thing? I have been to a lot of meetings in California and other states, and I've been to a lot of conventions. And I have never seen a group hand out a relapse chip. <laughs> I have never seen a chip that says, congratulations on your recent relapse. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. AA works best if you don't relapse. But if you do relapse, we want you to get back as soon as you can in whatever condition you can. And always remember that all costs anonymous is like motel six. In the meantime, we'll leave the light on for you. <laughs> so again, I want to thank this folks, this uh, group, for allowing me to be of service. And I want to thank all of you who showed up, who participated in your own recovery. God bless you.